foreplay. Welcome to the May 2021 foreplay as presented by the Raw Footage Podcast. I am your host, Colin Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. And this is my opportunity to highlight and promote what I consider to be the four best films released in a particular month in the UK. In this particular episode, My selection is the American indie film on trans issues, Cowboys, the micro, micro micro-budget film about young female friendship, What Lies West, the Mexican queer historical drama, Dance of the 41, and the dark thriller from the UK, Zebra Girl. And this is one of those situations where I am going to completely spoil the film Zebra Girl, which is why it is the last film I'm going to be talking about in this particular episode. In order to tell you why I think Zebra Girl is so good, I'm going to have to give away absolutely everything because the structure of this film is what I admire so much, and the revelations and what genre even the film is in is all about giving away absolutely everything. So I will be giving full, unrestricted spoilers to the film Zebra Girl at the end of the show. And if you don't want that, then I do strongly suggest you do watch the film Zebra Girl, which is currently available through streaming platforms. It is pretty hard going, but I think it's excellent. And also, I will be giving away minor spoilers for the film Cowboys, the first film I'm going to be talking about in this particular episode. There's an aspect, a character trait of Cowboys, which I think it's worth talking about but that can arguably be seen as a spoiler. And again, I do urge you to watch Cowboys, and if you don't want to have any spoilers at all, watch it before listening to this. I might even go into the very, very end of Cowboys as well. So minor spoilers for Cowboys and total complete spoilers for Zebra Girl are going to be in this episode. And since I'm giving away full spoilers for one of my films this episode, I wanted to leave it at the end of the episode so you could just stop listening in case you wanted to watch Zebra Girl before having the spoiler section. So the honourable mention section is going to be at the beginning of the show this particular episode. And therefore, that is where we will start. Honourable Mentions 
The first honourable mention I want to give out is to the French thriller on Netflix, Oxygen, which sees Melanie Laurent basically the only person on screen as she wakes up in a malfunctioning cryopod with her only connection to the outside world being the AI in control of this cryopod voiced by Mathieu Amalric. This film was directed by Alexandra Eiger, the confrontationally gory French horror director, but this is much more sedate than that. I like this kind of film where it's a very limited cast. I mean, basically the only person who appears on screen is Melanie Laurent, apart from the fact there are rather extensive flashbacks, which I don't necessarily like. But one person alone in an enclosed environment and trying to survive. I mean, it's very much like that Ryan Reynolds film Buried from a few years back. But Melanie Laurent in this cryopod and trying to work out what's going on, who she is even, and how to survive with the detached AI voice of Matthew Amalric. I mean, you can almost hear him saying, I'm sorry, I can't do that, Liz. It's an interesting, tense thriller. I mean, a survival thriller almost. It does get a little bit too silly and a little bit too elaborate by the end. But I still think that Oxygen on Netflix is a really, really cool film. And I do think it's worthy of mention in this podcast. Released via Sky Cinema here in the UK was a film called The Secrets We Keep, in which Numi Rapace is a Romanian woman who's married to an American doctor and living in small-town America in the immediate aftermath of the Second World War, when one day she comes across Joel Kinnaman, who also lives in this same small American town, and becomes absolutely convinced that Joel Kinnaman is the Nazi soldier who did terrible things to her and her sister during the Second World War. So Numi Rapace kidnaps him and puts him in the basement, much to the horror of Numi Rapace's husband, Chris Messina. I think this is an excellent, tense psychological drama. I think Numi Rapace is excellent. Chris Messina and Joel Kinnaman are also very, very good and asks uncomfortable questions about morals and ethics and also is a great portrait of the effects of trauma. I mean, Numi Rapace to the outside world looks like a perfect late 40s, early 50s housewife. She's married to a doctor. She has an adorable son. She seems to be assimilating pretty well into small-town America in the aftermath of the war. And yet, when she hears this particular whistling from Joel Kinnaman, she is right back into the traumatic, horrific events which happened to her as she was let free from a concentration camp as the war ended. And what she does, what she is willing to do in order to gain revenge on the soldier who did horrific things to her and her sister, 
I mean, I'm not sure she even knows what she plans to do with Joel Kinnaman, if he's even the right guy. I mean, it's very flimsy evidence. And the questions, the morals, the ethics of this are really, really uncomfortable to see. And the ending is quite open-ended, quite ambiguous, but pretty damn dark. I mean, this is not a comfortable Hollywood film where everything is wrapped up in a neat little bow, and it's not designed to be. This is a queasy, tense, psychological insight into trauma and revenge, and I think it's rather good. At the more mainstream end of things, the very first film I saw after the third lockdown was lifted was the Angelina Jolie film Those Who Wish Me Dead. Written and directed by Tyler Sheridan, who did Hell or High Water, amongst other things. This is, on the surface, a really broad thriller. Angelina Jolie is a fire jumper in the remote Montana wilderness, which I'll be talking about again in a minute. But she is a firefighter in the Montana forests who is so traumatized that she has been pushed off to the side and essentially retired. But when a boy gets lost in the woods and on the run from the mob, she has to protect this teenage boy, well, he's probably about 12 or 13, from not only the mob assassins who are after him, but also the gigantic forest fire which they've started in order to cause a distraction. So Angelina Jolie protecting Boy from fire and from mob assassins in the woods. It sounds like a little bit of a potboiler, and yes, to be fair, it is basically a potboiler, but it's executed very, very well. It was tense, it was dramatic, it was emotional in the right places. I think Angelina Jolie is excellent. I also think supporting roles from Aidan Gillen, Nicholas Holt and John Berntal are also excellent. And a star-making turn from an actress I've never seen or heard of before, Medina Sengore. She was fantastic in the film as well. So, yeah, it's a thriller, but it's exceptionally well executed, and I do strongly recommend Those Who Wish Me Dead. And perhaps the biggest mainstream film released in this tentative reopening of cinemas that we had back in May was A Quiet Place Part 2, which finally, finally came out in cinemas, and was very, very good. It's everything you wanted a sequel to be, focusing much more strongly on the teenage deaf daughter Millicent Simmons than the first film did, asking very cool questions about how people survive the things you need to do in order to survive. It's got a little bit of the Walking Dead attitude to it. You know, humanity is lost. How can we regain it? That kind of thing. So yeah, it's everything you want from a sequel. I mean, it's the first film plus. But 
the opening sequence of this film in which we see the first day these sound hunting creatures arrived in this small town america i mean it's very very stephen king i mean this gigantic thing appears in the sky over a baseball game i mean that is exactly what stephen king would have done to introduce these kinds of monsters but after this baseball game i mean the panic as they gradually realize oh we need to keep quiet in order to survive and the direction of john krasinski who apparently was reluctant to do the sequel, but he did it, and he pulled off an exceptionally exciting, vibrant, brilliant opening scene. I mean, one of the best action sequences, I mean, if you can call it that, that I think I've ever seen. It's very, very good. So, a good sequel to a good first chapter, but an exceptionally good opening sequence as we see exactly how this whole thing started in flashback. And yeah, I think A Quiet Place Part 2 is one of those very, very great examples that now I've seen the sequel, I actually appreciate the first one more. It made me appreciate just how good the first A Quiet Place was. So yeah, I do thoroughly recommend that one as well, even though you probably know to watch A Quiet Place Part 2, but it is an honourable mention in this podcast so my honorable mentions in the may 2021 full play are oxygen the secrets we keep those who wish me dead and a quiet place part two one play cowboys is written and directed by anna kerrigan and is technically her second feature-length film. Ten years ago, she made a film called Five Days Gone, which played at one tiny film festival and then absolutely disappeared. I haven't been able to prove this, but I suspect that that was her graduating project from film school and it just didn't get picked up anywhere. Since then, she has done a handful of shorts and a little bit of television, but this, her proper feature-length debut, I guess you might call it, Cowboys, did get premiered at the Tribeca Film Festival, where Steve Zahn picked up an award for Best Actor. It tells the story of a father and son who are camping in the Montana wilderness, played by Steve Zahn and Sasha Knight. But as the film progresses, it is revealed that Steve Zahn has technically kidnapped Sasha Knight because Steve Zahn's estranged wife, Gillian Bell, cannot accept the fact that her daughter is actually trans and would like to live as a boy. Steve Zahn accepts this, so he's decided to take his son and run away to Canada through the Montana wilderness. Gillian Bell is obviously very concerned about this sequence of events and gets the local Montana sheriff and Dowd on the pursuit of this father and son as they try to make it to the Canadian border. So, K 
can Steve Zahn and Sasha Knight make it to Canada? Will they escape the pursuit of Anne Dowd and the other law enforcement who is on their tail? And will Gillian Bell finally accept that her daughter is actually a son? I saw trailers for this quite some time ago. I mean, it was one of those nights where I was just going down a rabbit hole of trailers on YouTube. I mean, looking at the sidebar and thinking, ooh, that looks interesting, what's that? That looks interesting, what's that? And I saw this trailer, I thought, oh, look, Gillian Bell as the disapproving mother of a trans son. That looks kind of cool. And then when I saw it listed on the programme of the Glasgow Film Festival earlier in the year, and I'd already done all the oscar Beatty films I needed to do at that point, because it was well before the Oscars, so I watched things like Minari and The Mauritanian and First Cow at the Glasgow Film Festival. So once I'd ticked all the things I needed to see for the Oscars, I selected a couple of things that I wanted to see, and Cowboys was one of those films. I certainly was intrigued by it, so I used one of my remaining tickets on it. And then, thankfully, it was officially released onto streaming platforms in May. And I liked it enough that it did end up in this show. And before I go any further, I will remind you that in the review of this film, Cowboys, I will be giving away a minor spoiler. I would consider it a relatively minor spoiler. It's a revelation which. I think does actually work well as a surprise twist in the film. So it's in this podcast. I thoroughly recommend this film. And if you want to go in completely cold to Cowboys, then do stop here and do that. But there will be a minor spoiler for one character revelation, which happens in the course of the film. But with that said... I will tell you why I believe this film is one of the best films released into the UK during May 2021 after the trailer for Cowboys. I'm pretty sure Mom's a witch. Your mom is not a witch. She doesn't understand you yet. You're a tomboy, you don't want to wear dresses anymore. Tomboy's just another type of girl, but I'm not a girl. I'm sorry, I don't follow you. I'm in the wrong body, okay? I'm a boy! These ones. These yes. Are, these ones. Yeah. Those yeah. look pretty cool. Your clothes. You look like a dyke. I'm not a dyke. Did you hear what I just said about Joe? She said that she is a boy. You messed her up. I think it's best that you stay away. You've got one body. You've got one path. And God's got the game plan. I can't stay here. You really want to go with me? I'll be back. Be ready. Joe. You think our mountains are big here in Montana? Yeah. Wait till you see them in Canada. You just gotta go here, cross the river. That's it. I do not understand why you are not out there finding my kid. I'm gonna do everything in my power. We are going to find your child. You okay? Am I okay? Look who I'm with. Look where we are. I am beyond okay. Breaking news. An 11-year-old local girl, Josie Johnson, disappeared from her bedroom. Well, awesome. Now they're coming after us. You understood what we were doing! What was the plan? You were supposed to protect me! Joe's Joe. It's not some lump of clay that you just pound into something. 
It is always tricky when a trans story or, or any type of LGBTQ plus project is put in the hands of somebody who isn't in that community. To the best of my knowledge, Anna Kerrigan is a cis straight woman, but she has made films on LGBT subjects in the past, and she did describe herself as an ally in the Q&A that I saw attached to this film at the Glasgow Film Festival. So she doesn't necessarily fit into the queer spectrum, but she did make a very fine film, including insisting on finding a young, non-binary and or trans actor to appear in this film. And she hit the jackpot with Sasha Knight. Sasha Knight is biologically a girl, but the correct pronoun is he, and he is great in this film. The coming out scene, for want of a better term, that that he has with his father, Steve Zahn, is really, really well portrayed. I mean, right from the start, we know that this little girl doesn't like being put in dresses. She doesn't like having her hair long. But her mother, Gillian Bell, insists that you are a girl, you will wear dresses, you will have your hair long. But the childhood bedroom is surrounded by little plushy aliens and posters of aliens. And when Sasha Knight talks to his father one night, He says, yo, I'm not a tomboy, I'm a boy. It feels like an alien has put me in the wrong body. So everything fits together. And Steve Zahn is surprised by this, but accepts it. And realising that Gillian Bell will not accept that her daughter is a boy, just kidnaps him. Steve Zahn is not a very stable or very promising person, which I'll be getting onto in a minute. So, Gillian Bell has this attitude that God has a plan, God knows what you are, and there's only one way to be, despite the fact she doesn't really believe this. I mean, there's a specific line of dialogue. Who would want to be a girl? She thinks it's just a phase that her daughter will grow out of, and yeah, it's a portrait of a woman who has no experience of this, no idea about this, and doesn't like where it's going. And her estranged husband, Steve Zahn, who has spent time in jail, and we do see going to AA meetings, and has a rifle going off into the Montana wilderness. This is naturally something which Gillian Bell is concerned about. And also concerned about the attitudes that her daughter has. I mean, she is in so much denial that when Gillian Bell hands over a photograph to local law enforcement in the person of Anne Dowd, she hands over a photo of 
Sasha Knight in a dress with long hair and looking absolutely miserable. And this is the photo that gets put on the Amber Alert, gets put on the television, all this kind of stuff. Despite the fact that Gillian Bell knows that Steve Zahn will have cut Sasha Knight's hair and put him in boys' clothes. She knows that this photo is not going to be accurate, and yet this is the one that she gives to local law enforcement. She is so determined that she has a daughter that even though it will harm finding her child, she gives an inaccurate photo. And the gradual realisation, being forced to gradually realise, I mean, if I want my child back, I'm going to have to accept that I have a son. I mean, that's kind of what this journey for Gillian Bell is. And it, it kind of works, you kind of accept it, but the amount of acceptance that Gillian Bell portrays on screen by the end of the film, I'm not sure how much of that is genuinely, okay, I have a son, or how much of it is, I am so desperate, I will do anything to get my child back, even if I subscribe to this idea, I don't particularly believe it. It's not clear, and I think it's a nice piece of this film that it isn't clear. And the relationship between Sasha Knight and Steve Zahn is really cool to see. I mean, when we see at the beginning of the film, most of this film is told in flashback. I mean, we start with the father and son in the wilderness, and then we go from flashbacks to see how we get there. And in the flashbacks, even before the coming out scene, Steve Zahn had a great relationship with his daughter, much better than Julian Bell had with her daughter. And then after the coming out scene, Steve Zahn also has a great relationship with his son. He's accepting. He does this crazy thing of going off into the wilderness. I mean, you're not happy, so let's go to Canada. I mean, what are we going to do in Canada? I don't know, but we're going to Canada. I mean, he's that kind of person. He's optimistic, perhaps overly optimistic. And he's got a problematic personality. He does have apparent substance abuse issues. He does have a criminal record. And he is constantly popping pills as he is taking his son through the wilderness. So this is a potentially problematic situation. This is a situation which could easily lead to tragedy. But here's where the minor spoiler comes in. Steve Zahn is bipolar. The pills he is popping are not speed or ecstasy or vicodin or whatever they're antipsychotics and eventually his antipsychotics run out or rather they are lost in a river so eventually he is in the wilderness with his son and he's run out of his psychotropic medication and he's got a rifle and suddenly it gets dangerous in a different way than what you were anticipating and making that choice, saying that 
yes, this is a problematic character, but this is not because of any substance abuse or violence issues. He is mentally ill. And portraying that and being so desperate, I mean, having this optimistic attitude of we're going to Canada, I mean, when you're in an up phase, that is something that a bipolar person might do. But what happens when you're in a down phase and you're in the woods and you've got a rifle? And yeah, it's it's troubling in a different way. But Steve Zahn actually portrays it really, really well. And I do absolutely agree with Steve Zahn winning the Best Actor Award at the Tribeca Film Festival, even though I personally know of at least one acting performance I would have taken over it, because at the same festival, the Polish film The Hater was in competition. So my choice for Best Actor would have been Maciej Mazielowski, who I gave a honourable mention to as Best Actor last year. But anyway, Steve Zahn portraying this somewhat unstable but supportive father is a really interesting aspect of this, particularly when he is being pursued by Anne Dowd. I mean, Anne Dowd is an awesome actress. I mean, most people will probably know her from The Handmaid's Tale, but she really should have got an Oscar nomination a few years back for Best Supporting Actress in Compliance. She was chilling in that film a very very disturbing film and a very disturbing performance but Anne Dowd is awesome and she basically plays the only competent cop in Montana I mean she's the local sheriff and she's surrounded by idiots and dunderheads there's a brilliant scene where just after this amber alert has been released you know there's a little girl lost in the woods she is in her sheriff's station And what looks like the entire staff of this station are just sitting around looking at funny videos on YouTube instead of actually doing their job and looking for this kidnapped child. And Anne Dowd pursues through the forest and eventually catches up with her. And this brings me on to, I mean, since I've already given away a minor spoiler, I think I'm going to give an extra little spoiler about something that happens at the end. It's a pretty big spoiler, but... Yeah, spoilers ahead for the end of the film Cowboys. Eventually, Anne Dowd does catch up to Steve Zahn and Sasha Knight. And because at this point, Steve Zahn has run out of his pills and is brandishing a rifle, Steve Zahn is shot by Anne Dowd. Which I thought was a a beautiful and poetic and tragic way to end this film. But the one criticism or strong criticism I have of this film, Cowboys, is the fact that the ending is a little bit too optimistic. Because Steve Zahn survives. Yes, he ends up in jail, but he's alive. And I was thinking, really? I think you're undercutting the poetry and the meaning of this film by having Steve Zahn survive. And also the very, very end of the film, I also think is a little bit too much on the sweet side of Bittersweet. The final scene of the film is Sasha Knight wearing boys' clothes and with a short haircut getting on the school bus. 
And as he gets to the back of the school bus, all the little kids, you know, the middle school kids, stare at him as he goes to the back of the bus. But nothing is actually said, and they have just go back to their conversation. So, yes, Sasha Knight is an oddity, but it doesn't necessarily look like they're actually going to be bullied. Which, again, I think is a little bit too optimistic, given that this is a film which takes place in Montana. So, yeah, I think there's a little bit too much optimism, a little bit too much sentimentality at the end of this film. I think the harsher aspects of what this film could have been do strike me that maybe a little bit more tragedy, a little bit more harshness might have been appropriate but i do appreciate the fact that this is not an utter tragedy and we end up with a somewhat hopeful somewhat positive idea of what it might be like to be a trans boy in the middle of forested montana so yeah i think this is an excellent film about a parent-child relationship. It's an excellent film about coming to terms with an unusual background. I mean, this is not what I expected my child to be, and I'm going to have to deal with it. The cinematography is beautiful. I mean, the wide-open vistas of Montana are brilliant. I mean, Anna Kerrigan apparently grew up in Los Angeles, but did spend a lot of time as a child in Montana and wanted to make a film in Montana. So she did, and she really gets the the gigantic wilderness idea of Montana down really, really well. And also the, the small town attitudes and the small town cage that these characters go through. I mean, part of why Steve Zahn has a criminal record is the fact that you know the local bully started calling Sasha Knight a dyke, and Steve Zahn reacted inappropriately. I mean, yes, it's a, he's an obnoxious little kid, but he's a kid, and now Steve Zahn's got a criminal record. So, yeah, I mean, it's not entirely positive, which makes it stand out even more that at the end of the film, there doesn't seem to be any outright aggression or bullying to Sasha Knight wearing boys' clothes and having a short haircut. So, yeah little bit too positive at the end, but I mean, the attitudes of small town life and the wide open vistas of the Montana wilderness are all brilliantly portrayed. I think Steve Zahn gives an excellent performance as you gradually realise that this is a bipolar person who is gradually going off their meds. And the relationship between Sasha Knight and Steve Zahn is excellent as well. And I mean, as I said earlier, I mean, the fact that a 10-year-old trans boy is this good an actor, I am so impressed with Sasha Knight. And I'm so impressed with Anna Kerrigan for taking the time and effort to find an appropriate performer to portray this role. So, yeah, all around, I think Cowboys is excellent. It is currently widely available through streaming platforms, and I do think that Cowboys is one of the best films released into the UK during May 2021. To play. What Lies West 
is a micro-budget American independent feature and is the debut for writer-director Jessica Ellis. And for me, this is a case study in how you create a film with very, very few resources. How do you do that? Well, in Jessica Ellis's case, you shoot your film in the small town of Santa Rosa, California, in Sonoma County on the edge of wine country. You make a film which only ends up being 79 minutes long. You come up with a concept which is essentially a two-handed film, or largely a two-handed film between two young women, and then you cast your nieces as the actors in your film. That is what Jessica Ellis did, and it ended up being a really, really entertaining film. I mean, so many times this kind of project ends up disastrously wrong. Cinematic history, or maybe more accurately B-movie history, is littered with examples of people who just went out there and made a film, but they didn't have the skill, the talent, the drive, or the ability to actually pull it off. Jessica Ellis does. She has managed to create a quiet, intimate, charming little film which I really, really liked, and I want to do my absolute best to promote in whatever minuscule way I can. What Lies West stars Nicolette K. Ellis, who is Jessica Ellis's niece, as a 22-year-old recent college graduate who has got an acting degree. She has been promised a summer job by her ex-boyfriend, or at least the guy who dumped her last summer, Jack Vicente. He says he can get her a job in his dad's restaurant. But when this falls through, Nicolette K. Ellis is at a bit of a loss. Because she is planning to stay in Santa Rosa, California for the summer, unlike all her college graduate acting friends who have immediately headed off to La La Land, putting themselves into the meat market of auditioning. Nicolette K. Ellis has a different plan. She wants to make herself famous on Instagram before she starts turning up for auditions, hoping that this will give her a leg up. Not an entirely unreasonable plan, but Perhaps this is a plan which, not coincidentally, also means theoretically she will be spending a lot of time with this guy who dumped her, Jack Vicente. But when the job falls through, she is at a loose end, and a friend of her mother's, played by Anna Peterson, comes up with a suggestion. I need somebody to look after my daughter over the summer whilst I'm at work. And Nicolette Kayala says, look, I have no experience looking after kids. Are you absolutely sure? And Anna Peterson replies, oh, it doesn't matter. My daughter's 16 years old, yet she still needs looking after over the summer. So thinking, well, it's a job, I guess. Nicolette Kayala shows up and starts looking after this 
mildly overweight, very, very shy 16-year-old played by Chloe Moore, who is also a niece of director Jessica Ellis. And these two young women start hanging out together. Chloe Moore initially absolutely resents the presence of this babysitter. And when Nicolette Kayla says, what do you want to do? Chloe Moore just walks out of the door. And thinking, oh shit, I'd better follow her, Nicolette Kalis follows. And all Chloe Moore does all day is walk. She goes to a nearby park, a nearby lake, and just starts walking. And Nicolette Kalis just walks with her. But trying to be friendly, trying to connect, trying to you know, be supportive. And it emerges that what Chloe Moore wants to do is walk to the nearest beach, hike to the nearest beach, which is about 40 miles away from Santa Rosa, California, and is also off-road through woods, through hiking trails. It's going to be a bit of effort. Nicolette K. Ellis initially doesn't want anything to do with this plan, but when it is pointed out she'll have some great content for her Instagram page, she reluctantly agrees, and these two young women set off on a 40-odd mile hike across the northern tip of California to the nearest beach, and this is what they plan to do over the summer. And that's a pretty basic setup. I mean, when I saw this listed on the available films on streaming platforms, had a look at it, had a look at the trailer, thought, oh, look, that looks interesting female friendship movie, female empowerment movie, coming-of-age movie, directionless 20-something movie, all of those things, and it looked kind of charming. So I thought, okay, let's give this a go. And I'm really, really glad I did. I mean, this is a film that nobody is noticing, nobody is talking about. I wrote a review of this film for IMDb because, like I said, I want to promote this film as much as I can. And I've started to notice something of a pattern in these independent films that I started to watch when it comes to your IMDb reviews. Other than my review on IMDb, there are two other written reviews, both of which are 10 stars, both of which are very short, and both of which are by people who have only ever written that one review. And one of them, I'm pretty damn sure, is written by Jessica Ellis's partner. So, yeah, it, it's become increasingly obvious to me some of the, the mildly underhanded tactics that filmmakers use to try and get some notice on IMDb. But I wrote an honest review, a glowing review, a pretty lengthy review, because I think this film is genuinely good, and I do want to give it as much support as I can. And I'll tell you why I think this film is one of the best films that was released into the UK during May 2021, after the trailer for What Lies West. Can I just have one week to figure it out? It's summer. Honey, summer is for kids. Um, here you're looking for a job. 
I, I have a suggestion, my daughter Chloe. I really don't have a lot of experience with babysitting. Oh, there's no need. She's 16. Are you are you in or out? What is wrong with this kid? Seriously, we can do whatever you want. Anything? It's not like you want to murder anyone, right? I don't want to hike at the ocean, I want to hike to the ocean. But that's like 50 miles. It's almost 40 miles exactly. I have a route exactly planned out and I took orienteering. Nothing will go wrong. Well, why'd you drink so much? Because it's 170 degrees outside. No, you need to actually be here. I am here, I just want to make sure we don't get lost. We are not lost. Are we lost? Do you just want to start walking now? Yes. What kind of kids go hiking nowadays, huh? Weird ones? Crazy ones. I need a partner. A babysitter. An accomplice. I really, really like the character that Nicolette K. Ellis portrays in this film. On the surface, her idea of let's become famous on Instagram before I put myself through the grinding audition process in Hollywood, that's not a bad plan. It's just incredibly unlikely to work. And the more the film progresses, the more we realise it's actually masking a chasm of self-doubt and lack of self-confidence. And wanting to hang out with this douche nozzle, Jack Vicente, who the more time we spend with him, I mean, he's not in the film a great deal, but we spent enough time with Jack Vicente that we realise he's a total player, a total user. He's not going to follow through with his promises. I mean, basically, his move is, hey, my dad runs a restaurant in wine country. I've got coppolas coming out of my ears. Famous people are always coming through Sonoma on their way to their vineyards up a little further north. I have contacts. I can give you these contacts. But the more time passes, the more you realise that this is just what he does. This is his move. He's a user. He's not going to follow through on his promises. He's not going to help in any way. He's just going to help himself and help himself to Nicolette K. Ellis. There's a scene in this film which is the shortest walk of shame I have ever, ever seen. And yes, perhaps that is not the best term, but it's a simple term. And I think it's actually accurate in this particular case because Nicolette K. Ellis does feel a certain level of shame. But this is the path she has chosen. She has chosen to stay in Santa Rosa, chosen to try and get famous on Instagram, and chosen to try and get closer to Jack Vicente. And when that becomes increasingly obvious it's not going to work, she genuinely tries to support and be a friend to Chloe Moore. And it is clear very, very quickly that Chloe Moore has been so smothered by her massively overprotective, 
massively anxious mother that it's becoming a bit of a problem. And Chloe Moore is, with some justification, wanting to fight back against her restrictive environment. Some people would have gone the sex and drugs route, but I'm really not sure that Chloe Moore would know how to do it if she decided to do that. So instead, she's doing this crazy thing of hiking across California. And Nicolette K. Ellis, you know, wanting to be supportive, follows her. I mean, despite the fact that Nicolette K. Ellis really doesn't need to try and make friends with Chloe Moore. I mean, she's getting paid either way. All that Anna Peterson wants is for Nicolette K. Ellis to be there. She's getting paid either way. But despite that, she makes a genuine effort, a genuine attempt to be friends with Chloe Moore. And you can see the damage that Chloe Moore's mother is doing to her. And I think Anna Peterson is actually the underrated star of this film. I think she's excellent as this very, very troubling, very anxious, very overprotective, very smothering mother. I was genuinely concerned about her mental health as I was watching this film. And there's a mild twist at the end of the actual purpose and goal of this hike. And I realised that the filmmakers, the film itself, had the same questions, had the same problems that I did. And it's actually a really, really nice moment. I mean, this film knows what it is saying, knows what it is doing. Having these two girls, these two young women, who are each in their own way very unprepared for what they're about to do. I mean, you look at both of them and in neither case you think, oh yeah, that's a girl you would imagine on a hike. These two unprepared young women walking across California and naturally obstacles get put in their way, problems arise. Wouldn't you know it, they get lost. I mean, that's hardly a spoiler in this kind of film. But the way they each react to being lost, the way they each react to this situation also tells us a lot about these people. I mean, by the time we get on the hike, and the hike starts about two-thirds of the way through this film, by the time they start the hike, the tentative relationship, the tentative friendship these two young women have is palpable to see, because we've had so much time to build up the relationship. We've seen these young women interacting with each other, hanging out together, being together, that we can see the starts, the kernels of a genuine friendship, a genuine relationship. These two young women do actually care about each other in a very sort of we've known each other a couple of weeks kind of way, but it is there and we can see it building and it feels totally natural. I mean, I don't know if these two young women grew up together if they knew each other before filming, I mean, you can have a mutual aunt without being cousins, but the relationship between these two young women, I absolutely believe the very reserved, very shy, browbeaten Chloe Moore, and the on the surface effervescent, but 
underneath deeply insecure Nicolette K. Ellis. I mean, I think there is a razor, razor sharp line between pragmatically saying, I can get famous on Instagram before auditioning and just having absolutely zero self-confidence. And that's what Nicolette K. Ellis is showing throughout the course of this film. And each with their own issues, each reacting in their different ways. You really see these young women interact with each other. And this is a really, really charming little film. The biggest compliment I can pay What Lies West is I really, really wish it could have been longer. I mean, like I said, this is only 79 minutes long. And in an era where films are regularly clocking in at well over two hours, it would usually be refreshing. It would usually be something to support to have a tight, taut, little film. But in this case, I wanted more. There is more you could have done with the hike. I mean, like I said, it only starts two-thirds of the way through the film. And more than anything, the one thing that you could definitely expand upon is the relationship between Nicolette K. Ellis and this douche-nozzle user, Jack Vicente. I mean, showing why Nicolette K. Ellis is so attracted to him and also showing how he is clearly using her and has this playboy attitude despite not really being able or willing to follow through on any of his promises. Showing how that relationship works, showing the potential of it before you have the rug pulled out and you realise, oh, this guy's just a user and Nicolette Kalis is not going to get what she wants out of this. Explore that a little bit further. Show his personality a little bit more. Show the smarminess. You could have definitely had at least another 10, 15 minutes of the relationship between Jack Vicente and Nicolette K. Ellis, and I don't think it would have affected the pacing or the flow of the film at all. So, I mean, I so rarely say this, but I definitely, definitely wanted What Lies West to be longer. And like I said, in the modern era, that is possibly the biggest compliment I can say. And whatever else I say, I do say this is a tiny micro-budget film, a gold star example of how you make an entertaining, compelling, dramatic, micro-budget film. It does need support. It does deserve support. And as far as I'm concerned... What Lies West is one of the best films that was released into the UK during May 2021. Free play. Dance of the 41 is a Mexican film directed by David Pablos, who has a brief but somewhat respectable career. He has won awards for his short films in Mexico. His feature film, Las Elegidas, played at Cannes, and off the back of that publicity, he also managed to get a gig directing music videos for a couple of White Lies tracks, which is quite impressive because, you know, I no longer follow music, but I do like the band White Lies. So David Pablos 
has respectability, if not recognition, in the art house world. And he has been trying to get this film made for quite some time. It is a script written by Monica Rovia, whose IMDb page is largely made up of TV shows that have been made for Netflix. And perhaps that was connection enough for this film to finally be put into production by Netflix, given that no Mexican producers really wanted to touch it because of the film's queer themes. This is a film based on a real-life scandal that happened in 1901 in Mexico. The police raided a private home in Mexico City to discover 41 men dancing together, 19 of whom were in some form of drag. This was a huge scandal. It made all the papers. It was the first time that homosexuality was openly discussed in Mexico. But what made it even more scandalous is that by wide rumour and general public acceptance, there were actually 42 men dancing with each other in this ball, but one of them got away with it because he was the son-in-law of the sitting president of Mexico, slash dictator. He'd been president for about 20 years by that point, Porfirio Diaz. But his son-in-law was reportedly also at this ball, this dance, but his name was never officially listed in the people rounded up. But because he was so clearly connected to this scandal, his political career was basically tanked. This man, Ignacio de la Torre, was well on his way to becoming the governor of the state of Mexico, Mexico City state, which would have been the first step on the ladder to eventually becoming president of Mexico, particularly since he had married the sitting president's daughter, albeit the illegitimate half-indigenous daughter of the president, but still an acknowledged daughter of the president. So he was well on his way, but his connection to this scandal absolutely tanked his political career and he drifted off into obscurity. In the film, this man Ignacio de la Torre is played by Alfonso Herrera. His fictional boyfriend is played by Emiliano Zurita and his long-suffering wife is played by Mabel Cadena. And they play out a highly fictionalised version of this scandal because there's basically no details available. Because to this day it's only rumours that Ignacio de la Torre was involved in this, we cannot know anything for sure, but Monica Revere and David Pablos I think have done the best job possible to bring this scandal to light and publicise it in the 21st century. And to this day, this gigantic scandal from 1901 continues to have repercussions in Mexico. 
41 to this day is a euphemism for homosexuality. The Mexican army doesn't have a 41st battalion. Many hotels don't have a room 41, that kind of thing. It has been ingrained into Mexican society that 41 equals homosexuality. And to present a feature film in the modern day in Mexico, examining this historical scandal and examining the attitudes towards homosexuality and machismo, which existed then and to some extent still exist now, I think it was a worthy effort to make, albeit that nobody except Netflix apparently wanted to touch it, even though this film did premiere at the Moralia Film Festival in Mexico, it immediately ended up on Netflix and is available for the whole world to enjoy. And enjoy it I did. I was fascinated by this premise, I mean this idea of homosexual erasure throughout history and the things that were done to men and to society by people in power like Porfirio Diaz, who, I mean, looking at his Wikipedia page, he seems to be a fascinating character. I mean, I know nothing about Mexican history, but Porfirio Diaz seems like a fascinating character. A former general who got a native girl pregnant whilst on campaign and then acknowledged the daughter and married her off to a rising political star and held on to power for a hell of a lot longer than he should have done. The dividing line between president and dictator is very, very thin when it comes to Porfirio Diaz, but this strong-armed, strong-willed man anointing this man Ignacio de la Torre as potentially his successor, and then once this scandal breaks he just vanishes into obscurity until being plucked back out of obscurity by David Pablos and the script by Monica Revere. So, yeah, exploring the historical attitudes towards homosexuality and the mildly more liberal attitudes that we have in the present day is a fascinating thing to explore. And particularly when the cinematography and the costume design mean the look of this film is absolutely sumptuous it is gorgeous. And yeah, it, it's a very impressive film in a lot of ways. And I do think that Dance of the 41 is one of the best films released in the UK during May 2021. Because it allows for the fact that, yes, this man, played by Alfonso Herrera, was repressed. He was so deeply in the closet, so compartmentalised, that he essentially destroyed his life. He found love with this other man, this fictional other man, but was still attached to the president and the president's daughter. And he couldn't reconcile those things. He's quite honestly a bit of a prick in this film. Yes, he is troubled by his sexuality but he doesn't need to be so aggressively mean about it he is so selfish he doesn't even try to make it work with his wife 
He just leaves her alone in this gilded cage, surrounded by servants in this massive house in Mexico City, while he goes off and fucks man and doesn't give a shit about her. Even when Mabel Cadena starts suspecting that her husband, Alfonso Herrera, might have these urges, might have these secrets, it looks like there might possibly be a tiny sliver of acceptance, a tiny sliver of reconciliation. Possibly we can make this work. I really, really hate that you, my husband, are doing these things, but we might possibly be able to make it work. But he doesn't even try. He completely ignores it. So Mabel Cadena says, all right, fuck you, I'm going to destroy your life. And that's what she does. Mabel Cadena does some horrible, horrible things by the end of this film. But she's been pushed to it by this very obnoxious, very aggressive, very macho man. Alfonso Herrera might be playing a homosexual man, but he's still playing a man in Mexico in 1901. The idea of machismo, the idea of masculinity, you know, I am a man, I am part of the patriarchy, things will be done my way, that remains even though he also has this homosexual aspect to his character. And the strength and the conviction of, you know, the rightness of masculine power that is ultimately what destroys him. If he compromised a tiny, tiny bit with Mabel Cadena, maybe things would have been different. But instead, Mabel Cadena tries to force herself on him and says, I will cure you of your sin. So yes, she's the wronged woman, but she's also a religious zealot, which again, perfectly in keeping with 1901 in Mexico. I mean, the opening scene of this film is kind of a ball, a reception at the president's house. It's you know, a, a typical screenwriting technique, allows us to be introduced to the majority of the important characters. And you see, you know, here is, oh, hello, father-in-law, who is the president. There is my wife, your daughter over there, talking to her simpering female friend. It's a typical way you get introduced to characters like this, but I found it very, very interesting that in this party at the opening of the film, the military is very, very strongly represented, and also the church is very, very strongly represented. This is a conservative, a militaristic, a macho environment in which these people are living. And seeing how that works, seeing how that interacts with everybody is really fascinating to see. And seeing the pressures being put on somebody who doesn't conform to the rigid strictures of gender identity or sexuality, seeing how that can break a man and how it does break Alfonso Herrera. And how it breaks the relationship between him and this young man who also works for the government, Emiliano Zarita. And the relationship between the two men, I think, is very tender, very beautiful, and very unexpected. Reading between the lines, the way things are presented, it seems to me that Alfonso Herrera's relationships with men have, up until this point, been largely about dominance. I will control you. I will 
overpower you because I am the man, I am the important man. Even in his relationships with other men, that seems to be the attitude he has. But then Emiliano Zarita comes along and shows some tenderness, shows some connection, shows some simplicity, and Alfonso Herrera really doesn't know how to handle it. And gradually succumbing to this tenderness rather than the dominance he's used to, it makes the relationship work. It makes the relationship all the more convincing. So when it inevitably breaks up, it's all the more tragic. And yeah, there's a poetry, there's a poignancy to this, which in places is heartbreaking, albeit Alfonso Herrera remains a very objectionable, obnoxious character throughout. But as well as this tenderness, there is some frankness as well. There is a gigantic gay orgy scene. There are lots of oiled, lithe young men who have been hired for the night for these parties. I think the queer gaze is definitely here, or seems to be here, or at least is convincing enough. I have not been able to find any details about the sexuality of David Pablos, but the actors, as far as I can tell, are straight. The lead, Alfonso Herrera, is straight. He is married to a woman with two kids, and all his romantic relationships seem to have been with women. So, to the best of my knowledge, Alfonso Herrera is straight, but still puts forth a very convincing performance as a man deeply in love with and deeply conflicted about being in love with another man. But he is also a very selfish man. I mean, somebody asks him, why do you think we have rules here? And Alfonso Herrera replies, they're for everybody else. And yeah, going through the motions with his wife, the wedding night with his wife is very uncomfortable to watch. I mean, it's entirely fueled by alcohol. It's very, very mechanical and it's largely self-stimulated. And Mabel Cadena doesn't really know how to deal with this because, you know, she's a proper young upper class woman or somebody who's been accepted into the upper classes. So she really doesn't know what's wrong. I mean, what have I done wrong that my husband doesn't want to spend time with me? I mean, that's the tragic and all too common reaction. And Mabel Cadena is absolutely excellent in this. I mean, the pain and the frustration and then the gradual realization and then the vengeful attitude at the end. I mean, the spectrum that Mabel Cadena goes through, the journey she goes on, is brilliantly portrayed and painful to see. So yeah, Mabel Cadena and Alfonso Herrera are both really, really good in this film, as is Emiliano Zarita. I mean, the entire cast is excellent. And yeah, showing this window into the past, into the history of queer culture in another society. It's fascinating and painful and brutal, but also visually stunning. I mean, like I said, the production design, the costume design is excellent. The cinematography puts the rich lushness on display, but also has you know the the bit of the the muted attitude to it, you know, with all the gaslight and things like that. So yeah, the look of this film is stunning. And the film as a whole, I think, is very, very impressive. It is hard going, it is ultimately a tragedy, and 
you know, what really happened to these 41 men who were rounded up. As far as I'm aware, the real life story isn't quite as tragic as what is portrayed in the film. As far as I'm aware, the majority of these men didn't actually die, but they were severely punished. And yeah, it's fascinating seeing just how long the tendrils of this scandal have been. I mean, to this day, 41 is still a thing in Mexico. And this shows us why. And it's a beautiful, poetic, tragic, heartbreaking film. But it is very good. It is currently available on Netflix. And as far as I'm concerned, Dance of the 41 is one of the best films released into the UK during May 2021. Foreplay. Zebra Girl is the feature-length debut of director Stephanie Zari, who is American but UK-based, and the film is written by Derek Ahanen, and is adapted from his own one-woman play, Catherine and Anita, which played at the Edinburgh Festival in 2017, before having a run at the West End in 2018, where it was performed by Sarah Roy. And both Sarah Roy and Stephanie Zari do have screen story credits on this film, alongside Derek Ahanen. And before I go any further, I will once again remind you that I will go into full 100% spoilers about Zebragal. I'm going to give away absolutely everything about this film because that's kind of what I appreciate so much about it. So with that said, I'm actually going to do something I don't usually do. I mean, usually I have a little bit of a preamble, a little bit of a a foundation about what the film is before I go into the trailer and then my review and analysis of it. But in this particular case... I think I'm going to go directly into the marketing for this film because I personally believe that is one of the issues with some of the very negative reviews that are out there about Zebra Girl. So the synopsis on IMDb of this film Zebra Girl reads, quote, Catherine's seemingly perfect rural life is turned upside down after she discovers her husband is hiding a dark secret that leads to the unthinkable murder. End quote. That is how the film has been marketed, but I do not believe that is accurate in the slightest. This was not the film I signed up for, but fortunately I turned out to be really, really impressed with the film it ended up being. And I will be telling you why I think this film is one of the best films released in the UK during May 2021, after the trailer for Zebra Girl. I bet my soul to you. Every single dark crevice in you kept this for me. Thank you. Anita? There you are. 
Almost forgot what you look like. Just like the old days. <laughs> How long? Three years. Five years together. Adorable. Once you're in a relationship, you find out these things about your partner that maybe they're hiding early on so as not to scare the other person off. That is how relationships work, right? Yes. It's not like I need it at all. Would you like to hear what's wrong with me? <laughs> yes, yeah, sure. I need you to go to the store and get a bosol. A bosol at one store? Cleaning supplies at the other. To avoid suspicion? Obviously. Obvious. You know, I love you so much. You just gotta trust me. So that synopsis on IMDb and to a large degree that trailer as well make it look like this reserved woman finds out a dark secret about her husband and ends up killing him and then gets her childhood best friend Anita, played by Jade Anuka, to come and clean up, you know, get rid of the body. But that's not it at all. It's not the husband in this relationship, played by Tom Cullen, who was from Weekend, amongst other things. It's not Tom Cullen who has the dark secret. It's Catherine, it's Sarah Roy who has the dark secrets or what well, actually she doesn't because she has issues but she's not being secretive about it i mean that line you hear in the trailer do you want to hear what's wrong with me is also the tagline which you most commonly see attached to this film zebra girl and this is not some kind of quirky cute thing that Sarah Roy is saying on the first date. It is a statement with actual consequences. And she's very upfront, she's open right from the start. I have issues. I need to tell you what my issues are, and maybe you can look past them and we can have a relationship. I mean, that's how it comes across in this first date meet cute between Sarah Roy and Tom Cullen. And the issue that Sarah Roy has is she's just been let out of a psychiatric institute after a period of something like 11 or 12 years after she murdered her sexually abusive father when she was 15. And this was enough of a story that once Tom Cullen knows her full name. He says, oh, you're that girl. And you know, Sarah Roy says, yes, I need to be open. I'm, I, I'm better now. I'm on my medication. I've been okay for quite some time. They did let me out after all. But if you want to leave, I will understand perfectly. And there's lots of stuff in this. I mean, being brutally honest on a first date, I mean, this is not something you do. I mean, 
Sarah Roy specifically says, this is the first time I've ever been on a date, not just a date set up through an app. She's very inexperienced and you know, wants to get things out in the open. And despite the issues that Sarah Roy has, Tom Cullen stays around and forms this relationship. And knowing that his girlfriend and eventual wife has severe psychological issues and has killed somebody in the past, despite that, he sticks around. And I think it's a beautiful sense of understanding that Tom Cullen has. And as we flip back and forth between the marriage between Sarah Roy and Tom Cullen, we see in flashback the relationship between Sarah Roy and Jada Nuka. This lonely girl who it becomes increasingly apparent over the course of the film is being sexually abused by her father and the only friend she has this little black girl who she is constantly talking to, constantly spending time with, until eventually, as a 15-year-old, brilliantly played by Isabel Connolly, this character Catherine snaps and stabs her sexually abusive father in the head. But the way all of this it plays out sets off alarm bells or at least it did for me i mean right from the opening scene of the film sarah roy's mental state is in question she sees a gigantic spider in the corner of her room one second her husband is in bed next to her the next second he isn't there's whispers going on there's strange noises i mean is this a nightmare or is this genuine psychological disorders Right from the start, the mental state is in question. And the more we see these two little girls, I mean, the little white girl and the little black girl interacting with each other, and given the fact that the title of this film is Zebra Girl, I started realising very, very early in the film that Jada Nuka, this childhood best friend who has come to clean up the body, isn't actually physically there. She is a symptom of the mental illness that Sarah Roy has, and has always been a symptom of the mental illness that Sarah Roy has. But what I really, really appreciate about this film is that there is never a moment of revelation. There is never a, aha, can you see what we've done here? You gradually come to the realisation that, oh, this little black girl variously played by Tega, Oduko and Romani Wright, is not actually there. It's a gradual understanding. You come to realise these things. This is not bluntly said. This is not revealed in any way. You just come to the understanding that, oh, this is a symptom of Sarah Roy's mental issues. And she always comes across as a very odd character. She's very, very reserved. She's got a very distinct, very precise way of talking. She can't even say the word pornography. And she is always, always wearing pink. 
And even the knife that she stabs her husband with has a pink handle. And when she talks to her friend, Jade Anuka, she specifically says, if you get a bow sword, can you get a pink handled bow sword? Even the bleach that she uses to clean up after the body is pink. This is a very odd person anyway. And the reason she has for stabbing her husband is she finds him at his computer later night, so like three o'clock in the morning, and is convinced that her husband is using pornography, something which she cannot accept, possibly through context, realising that her husband's proclivities will cause problems down the line. Because the ultimate tragedy about this film The reason why I say it is not a comedy in the slightest, despite the fact there are some jet, jet black humorous moments and ironic juxtapositions throughout the course of the film, these odd people calmly talking about chopping up a dead body in this very precise, very mannered way, it has its quirky moments, but I definitely wouldn't call it a comedy. This is a tragedy. And the tragedy is that Sarah Roy becomes pregnant. This is something she wants. This is something that Tom Cullen wants. And Sarah Roy wants it so badly, she stops taking her medication. She gets informed that the medication she's taking, Risperidone, might have some effect on her unborn baby. And I had a quick look online, and that doesn't actually appear to be the case. It seems that there's no proven catalogued risks with taking risperidone during pregnancy. But whatever, she is told that her antipsychotic medication might affect her unborn baby, so she stops taking it and becomes increasingly more paranoid. and has increasingly loud voices starting talking to her. And it looks like Tom Cullen is distancing himself from his wife. It looks like he started to regret his decision to A, marry, and B, impregnate somebody who has serious mental health issues. And when Sarah Roy finds him at 3am in the computer, looking at pornography as far as she's concerned, she snaps and stabs him in the head with a pink-handled knife. And through context, she is so concerned that you know, her unborn daughter will fall victim to the same things that her father did to her. And it's at this point we realise that Tom Cullen actually looks suspiciously like Sarah Roy's father. So she becomes so concerned and she hasn't been taking her medication for long enough that she kills her husband. And it's only right at the end of the film that she realises, hang on a minute, he wasn't looking at pornography, he was buying 
baby clothes online. He was still committed to the marriage. He was still committed to the pregnancy. He just had natural concerns when it became clear that his wife had stopped taking her medication in secret. And that is just the ultimate tragedy as far as I'm concerned. Tom Cullen went into this marriage, eyes wide open, went into this pregnancy with eyes wide open. I know there will be issues. I know that my wife is not going to have ordinary reactions to certain things. I mean, there's a beautiful little scene where Tom Cullen and Sarah Roy are fishing together. And this is something that the young Catherine Daisy Mayer did with her father. And the implication is this is when he started abusing her. So fishing reminds her of her father. And Tom Cullen just sits calmly next to her, holds her hand, realises that, oh, she's being triggered here. He just sits calmly, holds her hand. Nothing's wrong. I'm right next to you. You need a moment of quiet. I'm here. It's so perfect, so beautiful, so understanding. This is the perfect marriage for this situation. And yet... Because she stopped taking her antipsychotics, arguably unnecessarily stopped taking her antipsychotics, she ended up killing her husband for no good reason. And that is the absolute ultimate tragedy as far as I'm concerned. And the portrayal of mental health issues from within the body of somebody who is demonstrating mental health issues. I think is brilliantly done in this film. Having the imaginary best friend, Jade Anuka, and yeah, being you know, the white girl with the black best friend who turns out to be imaginary and is therefore she is the zebra girl. And she calls herself the zebra girl initially because that's what she focused on, some zebras on her wallpaper in her childhood bedroom as her father was abusing her. And he also sang Itsy Bitsy Spider to her as he was touching her, which is why there's so many spiders in this film and spiders freak her out so much. So this is a very, very damaged girl. And we are seeing it entirely from within her perspective. So it really, really reminded me of Marjan Satrapi's film The Voices, starring Ryan Reynolds as a paranoid schizophrenic who when he dates people, ends up chopping their heads off and keeping them in the fridge. I mean, in these heads are people like Anna Kendrick. I think The Voices is an excellent film. It is pretty hard going, but it's an excellent film. I also found a little bit of Corey Findlay's film Thoroughbreds in this, which was a top five film of mine from, what, two or three years ago now. But yeah, Thoroughbreds, I think, was another touchstone I found in this film. But yeah, it's it's a beautiful, poetic, tragic film. I think it is excellent. I mean, just before Tom Cullen has a knife stabbed into his head, he says, or starts to say, it's not what you think. And this is possibly the only time in cinematic history where somebody says, it's not what you think. And it actually isn't what they think. I mean, that's become a stock phrase, and it usually means exactly the opposite. But here, 
it is definitely not what she thinks. And yet, he ends up dead and dismembered in the garden. And yeah, it's... It's an intricate, well-written film. I think Sarah Roy's performance is outstanding. I mean, as I said, she did the original one-woman show in the Edinburgh Festival in 2017 and had some impact into the screenplay as well. She is excellent. I also think the teenage Catherine Isabel Connolly is excellent as well. It's very well acted. It's responsibly done or or reasonably responsibly done. And I do think it's excellent. I think this is the kind of small independent movie which nobody's really heard of, nobody's seen, nobody's paying attention to. So I want to pay attention to it. I want to make this one of those breakout, undiscovered gems, a diamond in the rough. I really, really like Zebra Girl. And I do think it is one of the best films released into the UK during May 2021. So there's my foreplay for May 2021. Cowboys, What Lies West and Zebra Girl are all available to rent through streaming platforms. Dance of the 41 and Oxygen are both available on Netflix. The Secrets We Keep is available in the UK through Sky Cinema, and Those Who Wish Me Dead and A Quiet Place Part 2 are both scheduled to be released on streaming platforms at the end of August, so only a few days away from when I'm actually recording, but you will soon be able to watch those at home. I'm actually reasonably close to being able to record the June foreplay as well so who knows maybe that will be coming relatively shortly after this but we've still got plenty of standard episodes to go as well and as ever a massive pile of things on my to watch list but for right now I think that will do it so this has been foreplay presented by the raw footage podcast I've been your host, Connor Gaisley, coming to you from Bath in the southwest of England. Email is rawfootagepodcast at gmail.com, or you can tweet me at rawfootagepod. Intro music for this episode comes from the Portrait of a Lady on Fire soundtrack, written by Parawan and Arthur Simonini, used with a liberal interpretation of fair use. And I'll see you next time, where I shine a light on cinema both obvious and obscure. Ah!